0: Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is a very special best-of edition of the Fanboy Podcast. So, this first clip you're going to be hearing comes from the very first episode of the show ever. And just to sort of set the stage for you a little bit, I had just gotten unceremoniously fired from Latino Review the night before. And this was a Tuesday now, and this is the day where we would normally release a new episode of a podcast that I had named called Lost Fanboys, which had me and a few other people discussing fanboy topics. But now on this Tuesday, this very next day after being fired, I found myself on the outside looking in and I felt like, you know what? If I can't be part of Lost Fanboys anymore, then I may as well launch El Fanboy, which is, you know, the Spanish way of saying THE Fanboy, which would eventually become the title of this show. But at first, this was called the El Fanboy Podcast, and it all began with this opening rant that started off the show one day after being fired. This is Mario Francisco Robles, and you're listening to the inaugural edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. Yes, this is episode numero uno. This is, uh, I, I'm literally just sort of flying off the seat of my pants here. I don't know what I'm really going to be doing. We're going to be winging this shit together. As a bunch of you know, uh, things happened yesterday that were sort of unexpected. I don't really want to get into the specifics of it. Just know that your boy's going to be just fine, and this was actually uh, kind of a blessing in disguise, really. Um, just a little background, you know, I've never really had a, a boss. I've always sort of been my my own self-made man type of dude uh, since the age of 19 when I quit the Gap. Uh, I've pretty much lived my own freelance lifestyle for going on, you know, 14, 15 years now. So for me, I was actually starting to feel sort of suffocated over at where I was. And I was actually having lots of conversations with my wife and with my best friends about, you know, I I think in early March, which is coming up in, what, two, three weeks, uh, I'm probably going to be resigning from that place and trying to find something that's better suited uh, for me and my interests. So this all sort of just happened, and in a way, it's sort of a blessing. It's a little sooner than I would have expected, and obviously, you know, for being totally honest. Of course, I would have rather had it happen on my terms, but you know what? I think this is the universe kind of just giving me a slap on the face and going, you know what? You're ready now, and there's no reason to wait those couple of weeks. Maybe that's a rationalizing, rationalization. Who knows? All I know is I'm still the same passionate motherfucker you guys have been used to for the last three and a half years. I got a lot of opinions to share. I got a lot to give, and this is going to be my new outlet for it, and I'm fucking unchained and untamed. There's no corporate owners anymore. There's no talking points that I have to go through with you guys. I don't have to talk about any subject that I'm not interested in, Uh, so I'm literally going to be talking about the movies that matter the most to me, and... In general, this is going to be slightly more of a personal take than uh, the other place you guys know me from and the other show you guys know me from because I'm the boss now. I'm calling the shots, so you're also going to sort of find out from me what's going on with me. And just to kind of give you a bit of a tease, a bit of a, a, a hint as to where this show might go, um, you know, I've made connections over the years with people in the industry. I've got some great friends and some great allies, so I may be bringing on the occasional guest and uh, more on that later. Uh, and there's also, you know, I, I made a resolution for 2017 that this was going to be the year that I stopped being someone who writes about the industry and instead be someone that people write about. Because while it's been fun covering movie news and analyzing all the latest news and bochincha and rumors and all that stuff elsewhere, the truth be told, I want to be making movies. I want to be on the screen or I want my words to be spoken by people who are on a screen. My whole life has been about entertainment. This is what I do. This is why I get so fucking passionate and so heated about things. And that's why the guys at the Medium Popcorn podcast are like, tell me I sound like I'm on the spectrum sometimes because I, I get so into this stuff. But, you know, my whole life has been about this. I grew up in New York City. I'm a, I'm a Cuban, Puerto Rican, or, como dice mi mamá, un cubano bien rico. And both sides of my family were theatrical families. Uh, my, you know, my my parental grandparents, uh, you know, my, my paternal grandparents started a company uh, called Intar, which is still running today on Theater Row on Forty Second Street. My maternal grandparents started the Latin American Theater Ensemble, which my grandmother actually closed down a, a few years back now. But basically, they you know two theatrical families. And the two youngest kids from those two families got together, got married, and had me. And I grew up in that world. I grew up surrounded by actors, directors, writers. I didn't have any brothers or sisters. So my family, really, the people I grew up around were artists, were creative people. I grew up backstage as plays were getting put together. I grew up watching how the bagels were made, you know what I mean, watching how art and, and transformative performances were created. So I grew up very much surrounded and inundated by entertainment and being in awe of what it is and understanding how it's made and knowing how to make it better or what isn't working. Um, I was having very deep conversations with directors and playwrights when I'm like fucking eight years old. And, uh, <clears throat> there, there was also the, uh, little thing that has been alluded to several times elsewhere, which is my aunt was Elizabeth Pena. <clears throat> no, I'm not. <clears throat> sorry. Uh, I seem to have got a little bit of the plague today. Um, but yeah, my aunt was Elizabeth Pena who, you know, she left us a couple years ago. She, she passed on, um, but during the time I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, she appeared in a lot of great movies. She was in La Bamba. She was in Steven Spielberg Presents, Batteries Not Included. She was in Blue Steel. She was in the first Rush Hour movie. She, was, uh, she voiced Mirage in The Incredibles. I mean, her resume speaks for itself, so I don't really have to go into all that, but she was a big role model for me. And she was someone who was also similar to me, or me being similar to her. She was a self-made person. She never really had her own boss. Uh, she worked at a bagel shop for a little while. She slammed her finger on the register once during her first day there, and she just said, "You know what? I'm out of here." <laughs> and uh, she would just go to auditions all day. And she would. Uh, she eventually she just picked up her shit and flew out to L.A. and she made a life for herself out there. And she lived, and she died, on her own terms. Um, so she was always an inspiration to me. So for you guys who have followed me all these years, if you're going to continue to do so, all I can do is promise you that I'm going to try to make the the rest of my trip even more entertaining than, uh, the last leg of it, which you were there for. This next clip comes from episode 43. This would be the episode where I brought on the legendary Mark Miller, to be a guest on the show, Mark Miller, the man who gave us Marvel's Civil War, the man who gave us Old Man Logan, the man who helped give us the books that inspired the kick-ass movies and the Kingsman movies, and at one point came pretty close, i at least I thought, to creating a Superman trilogy. So naturally, as part of that conversation, I had to go back to 2008 and ask him about this pitch that had come onto the Internet. We all heard about this exciting trilogy, this dark, interesting, weird trilogy that would find Superman being the last living being on Earth as he outlived everybody. It was going to be this grandiose, crazy, interesting alternate take on Superman, and I'd heard about it for so many years, and now that I had the man himself on my show, I simply had to ask him about it, and thankfully, that led into a much longer general conversation about Superman, what an upcoming Superman movie should look and feel like, and some insights into the conversations that he and Vaughn had had while trying to put together their ideal Superman movie. So here's this clip from episode 43 with me, Talking Superman, with Mark Miller. Well, no, we,
1: we didn't actually pitch it. What it was, was Matthew phoned me up and he said to me, did you not
0: know have a Superman idea?
1: And I was like, I've got, I love Superman, I've got a million Superman ideas. And he said, would you be interested in coming in and sort of like, telling that the idea to um to one brothers he said because the because kick-ass i think um around that time i can't remember if we'd started filming kick-ass or it uh, had been finished but matthew and i had a good relationship going and we knew we were going to work together for a long time and matthew said to me you know i remember you telling me in the pub you had this idea for a sort of, three picture superman thing and i was like yeah 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 <laughs> you know but nobody ever heard it i told matthew a little bit of it and matthew loved it and then he said to Warner Brothers, listen, would you be interested in bringing Mark Miller in? And they said, not really, no. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I it was, see. Um, you know, they said, he's a Marvel guy, you know, like he's under contract at Marvel. There's no way we're going to disrespect our, our own people, you know, by, yeah. by bringing in a Marvel guy. And I said to Matthew, that's fair enough. You know, I, I understand, you know. Yeah. But, you know, Matthew and I talked about it. And like uh, the idea I told him was a Superman picture that was, it began at the beginning of time. And it ended at the end of time, and it was going to be Superman's story, you know, his life story, uh, starting with the the formation of, like, the Council on Krypton and everything way, 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 way back, Um, and, like, uh, you know, running to Superman's death, which would be obviously whenever the stars go out, you know, because by that point... Yeah,
0: and he would essentially be, like, the last living being on Earth. He would outlive everyone,
1: so it would be a magic ending. Yeah, that was my ending. Um, I'm sure somebody at DC will swipe me an eye on this, you know, but like, yeah, but that's, it was essentially that story. But I had a gigantic, gigantic trilogy of stories in amongst it all that had dark side in it and everything. It was like, it was a big, big, big three picture it thing. And sounded I wanted
0: to like it, yeah. Well, let's do
1: something that felt a bit like the Godfather for Superman, you know, something that starts with like young Michael Corleone and then you eventually see him die as an old man. I wanted to do something that covered everything and it was everything i wanted to say about superman but um but it never happens and uh, and we did some other stuff instead but um it was almost there in the back, back in my mind you know i mean I'm, I'm going to be busy for the next few years but at some point i'll maybe do it as a graphic novel just maybe frank whiteley and i or brian hitch and i or something we'll maybe get together and do it as a graphic novel or something i would
0: love that yeah please oh, do I, I love Batman. He's, a,
1: he's my favorite character it's uh i mean as a kid everybody else used to their heroes used to be footballers and things like that, you know. And like my my hero is Superman, you know. So yeah. like, I don't know if I didn't get beaten up every day, you know. But I just I've always loved Superman.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, it's funny because I guess you know it, it, things are always like a game of telephone, where you know you hear something and then it morphs into something bigger by the time it reaches you know the press. Because it was always sort of presented as you know, Miller pitched this movie to Warner Brothers, so it never actually made it that far, huh? You spoke to Matthew. I never it and made that a pitch it. in my life.
1: I've I've always thought. I remember hearing from friends, "Oh my god, it's so humiliating going out and doing a pitch." And I just always thought, it's a bit like, it's too needy for me, you know, like, I don't know, I think I'd be too embarrassed to actually sit in there and pitch somebody. I think, look, if you want me to do this, just hire me to do it, you know, it's like, I I think going in and actually trying to convince somebody, it's a bit like begging someone to go on a date with you, you know, so I never never really fancied it, you know, so, I mean, honestly, it's funny, because I've seen so many variations of this report, and some people said, uh, Oh, yeah, Warner Brothers hated Miller's uh, take and all that. It's like they never heard anything. They just said, Would you like to work? You know? And then other people said to me, Yeah, I read Mark Miller's uh, synopsis. It's terrible. And, and then other people said,
0: it's the, be- it's the
1: best thing he's ever done. It's a shame it never happened. And oh, nothing is written down. There's like literally
0: nothing. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Well, now I'm, I'm really hoping you get around to making that graphic novel. Um, but now, so after. It, cool. it could be cool. So I hope someone listening makes that happen. But listen. Um, in terms of now, you know, because you know your mate, you know Matthew, is uh-huh. you know, a few months ago he kind of pap- he popped back up on like the Superman radar and kind of re- yeah. revealed that he was having some conversations with Warner Brothers again about Superman possibly doing you know Man of Steel two, the follow up. You know, do, have you heard anything about that? Would you be willing to kind of let us know? uh, well, I, think any I, think exactly. there? I
1: mean, there's like there's ten guys you know who are, who are at the top of everyone's list. It's like the the, the normal thing, you know. Like uh, I would say, guys actually, I mean guys in the kind of broad sense, you know, yeah. women, obviously, you know. But it's like there's there's ten directors who everybody's chasing at any one time, you know. And yeah, they'll talk about him for a Star Wars movie. They'll talk about him for a Marvel movie. I yeah. mean, Matthew's approach for everything. So Superman was one of those things, and he and I are massive Superman fans. I mean, we we worship Richard Donner. We love the Christopher Reed movies. We're both about the same age, into all the same stuff. Really? So he, he actually phoned me up a few months ago and he said, "Hey, listen, DC—they're very interested in me doing Man of Steel two. Do you want to come in and do this?" And I was like, "I'm exclusive to Netflix for, for years. That we, we can't even have that conversation." Ah. And he was, like, oh, man, "What's the chances of this?" You know. So then it kind of drifted away, and he's attached himself to a couple of things and all that. You know. So it's one of those things. that may. I mean, if somebody phones Matthew up and offers him enough money, it could all change tomorrow.
0: Yeah. You know? so, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> do, do do you think he would consider trying to incorporate some of those ideas that you had discussed ten years ago, or probably well, go someplace different? He
1: doesn't know enough of them. He actually just remembers little bits of it. Yeah. You know, so because that would be my worry. You know. But yeah. like, uh, but he he doesn't really remember much except I, I, I told him one thing. I told him one thing. And, and he remembered that. But, I mean, the, the whole broad thing. I mean, I, I've got stuff handwritten that I've had down for years just in a big folder. I've got this just Superman ideas. I've got I've got all these folders all over the house. Like, I've got, like, Green Arrow ideas. I've got, like, you know, Green Lantern ideas and things. I've got, like, obscure stuff, you know, yeah. that you even have heard of ideas. And the stuff's just all lying there. And at some point in the future, I'll write them And I've got a gigantic Superman folder, like I say. But nothing's ever been typed up. You know, so I that's, see, yeah. Nobody really knows what my plans are, so nobody can swipe me.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Because you know, it's funny because he, he did say, you know, like you mentioned being Donner fans and because he, he addressed that, you know, back in September saying that like he would almost want to make like a modern version of the Donner Superman and he wants it to be colorful and heroic and very, quote unquote, feel good. And then when you when I thought about that juxtaposed with, with uh, your, your very sort of dark sounding trilogy, I'm like, I wonder which way he's going to go with it. Although my thing
1: absolutely wasn't dark, sorry. I mean, that's, th- this is why I'd be terrible in a picture. Yeah because it's that does sound dark you know the death of Superman Yeah, but it was actually a massive uplifting hopeful thing like every single minute of it you were going Mm. to feel amazing because there's no point doing Superman unless you feel good like you should walk out of Superman just feeling like a million dollars you know you should feel great after a Superman film so the way it was going to be was just the end of time you don't see Superman die or anything it was just going to be that was the end you know as the stars are going out but like but the movie itself was just going to be a big vast fun epic but Superman's got to be a laugh as well, yeah. you know. I mean,
0: that's I feel that like, the
1: feel like movies were, were so charming, and that's the tone I would absolutely. Yeah,
0: love. I, I feel like what you just said should have been part of the pitch. You're like, <laughs> if you ever get to do it, just just go in and say, "Listen, every minute of it, you're going to feel amazing," <laughs> and that's all. <laughs> that's all they need to hear. This next and final clip from episode ninety six of the Fanboy Podcast, and it was about bloggers themselves and this very industry that I had found myself a part of the last few years, and me wondering, really, what's it all about? Because after making some connections to other industries I love and seeing how the blogosphere can be more toxic than, than helpful, I had some soul-searching to do. But I also had some really passionate things to say about the state of film journalism. So this episode, this rant in particular, inspired several people to rush over to Apple Podcasts just to leave me a review because they felt so strongly about what I had to say about the online fan community and blog sites in general. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Once again, this is from episode 96 of the Fanboy Podcast. When I look at the blogosphere when I look at this work that we do, I have like sort of moral ethical quandaries. I oftentimes feel like, am I doing something good here? Or am I polluting the film industry? Am I polluting what you know, what it is to just be a devout fan? Or, or even if I'm not personally doing it, am I attached to an industry that does? Am I attached to an industry that is slowly taking all of the fun and all of the joy out of being a lover of movies, and out of being a, a purveyor of fine entertainment. You know, I, I so I guess it's it's time to get into some of that a little bit because it all connects. You just have to trust me that it all connects. So this all began with the latest episode of eighty three weeks with Eric Bischoff arriving on Monday morning. I listen to that as I listen to it every week. I'm obsessed with that show and something to wrestle with, which again, if you're a wrestling fan, if you're not listening to those, I don't know what's going on with you. But, you know, it's even if you're not a wrestling fan, I should just let you know, it's a pretty fascinating look at the rise and fall of a company, at what led to its amazing huge meteoric rise in the mid-90s to all of a sudden crashing and burning and and going pretty much bankrupt and having to get sold off to WWE WWF at the time within a six-year span of becoming this huge global brand and he you know he, he Bischoff really goes into great detail about all the different things that led to the company's demise and yes he lets himself off the hook a little bit too often but he goes into a lot of detail about the, the, the daily grind and difficulties and the huge political pressures that led to his company folding. And on this week's episode in particular, he talked about the dirt sheets a lot. And when we say the dirt sheets as wrestling fans, what well, we're really referring to are geek blog sites. So the dirt sheets for the film industry, are all these blog sites like Revenge of the Fans, like all the like all of these little ComicBook.com and Dark Horizons and Latino Review and I mean, it, t- take your pick. You know, Collider, Screen rants, You know, they're all some varying level of a dirt sheet. Because what we've done is us bloggers, us fans, is we found a way to turn being a fan into an industry. You know, we, we start these newsletters and these websites where we just go and feverishly start discussing any and all news about this thing that we love. And any information that we get about this thing that we love, we share it in these detailed reports. And we think we're doing this big service and we're giving all the fans, we're arming them with all of this information. And in theory, yes, that is what we're doing. But ultimately, with the Dirt Cheats in particular and their relationship to WCW in the late 90s, it became this thing where they were... WCW became like the whipping boy. It became like the DCEU was a couple years ago. It just became fun to rag on the company as they were struggling, as they were losing stars, as they were losing money, as the new owners who bought the parent company of WCW started cutting their budgets and, and putting all these creative restraints on them. The bloggers, the dirt sheets, would basically just kind of point and laugh at them. And it got to a point where like, the the bloggers really started to impact the public perception of the product. And even beyond that, his owners, yeah, you know, is the owners of the company, the corporate people, because you know, at, at some point Time Warner bought Turner Broadcasting, and that brought a whole new you know level of, of, of you know complications. But the issue was all these suits, all these executives who didn't necessarily want to go and take in the product and monitor it themselves. They would go and tell an assistant, hey, go see what they're talk- what they're saying about WCW on the internet and let me know, you know, what what it is that fans think. And what the problem with that is, dirt sheets don't necessarily represent the fans. They only represent the most hardcore, intense crazy fans, that small percentage who don't just watch the show on Monday night, but also every single day they're looking for every scrap of information they can because they obsessively follow it and they love it and they're entitled to do that. But on these, you know, on these little blog sites, all you'd get is this very sort of you know, skewed view of the product. And you'd and they would get information. These reporters would get information from people who, of course, they're going to trust. What if it's, you know, the world champion of a company who called you up from a payphone after a pay-per-view to tell you, hey, you know, so-and-so is about to get fired and it's chaos back here and this, this, and that. But the problem is while the reporters wanna go and believe them because, oh my God, I just got off the phone with someone I just saw on TV, they're real. The problem is everyone has an agenda. Everyone has some sort of, you know, there's a reason, there's a political gain in a lot of the information they would pass, and it's hard to properly vet that. And what ends up happening is a lot of speculation would then get reported as fact, or one person's viewpoint on a situation gets passed on, and now it's, part of wrestling lore for the last 20 years and Bischoff has had a lot of fun basically hearing a lot of these little you know mythologies that have been built and then when the when the host Conrad Thompson asks him about them he mentions that either never happened or that was one of 10 ideas we discussed that day that was never going to be the plan it was one of several plans but this website took it ran with it, said it was the plan. And now for a whole generation of fans who grew up on those sites, that is their truth. And it totally screwed with his ability to speak to his bosses about the product because they were going based on what the blog sites said. And it really kind of helped just poison the well on the WCW brand and, and the overall product. And while listening to that, I saw all these little parallels, and it started feeling like, like specifically like with DC, I was like, oh my goodness, the DCEU got dirt cheated. You know, all the blog sites that just smelled blood in the water and saw, ooh, you get lots of clicks and lots of attention and lots of social media followers when you pile on DC struggles. So let's just do a lot of that. And I started realizing this week that wow, you know, it really to me it feels like the DCEU got dirt cheated. You know, they got dealt the same hand that WCW did, where they're just trying to pivot and figure out what they gotta do to stay relevant and tweak their plans and just live, you know, do what they gotta do as a company. But the online website, fan, geek blog community just totally like turned on them, made them feel like their product sucks and is subpar and the wrestlers would go home and read this stuff too. And it, it was like this weird, nasty, you know, negative loop. And it made me look at all of that and made me decide, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a dirt sheet writer. I don't want to be a Dave Meltzer. I don't want to be, that's a prominent wrestling uh, journalist, so to speak, um, you know, I walked away from that podcast really kind of feeling like, I hope I'm not hurting the very industry I love. Because that's something that Bischoff said. You know, the great irony is that these people profess, they proclaim to love wrestling. And the reason that they, that they report on it so passionately and in such, you know, vivid detail is because they love it. But they are inadvertently hurting the very thing they love by spreading things that are maybe only half truths. Or maybe they are true, but no one should know about them just yet. Maybe that thing that you just turned into a gigantic controversy would have resolved itself in 72 hours if you just allowed those people having the conflict to figure it out. Let that wrestler go to his boss and have them hash out their issues. Instead, that angry wrestler called you on Monday and you blew up the story and now it's a huge ordeal you know? So I realized that this blogging thing, this way in which fans become reporters and start, you know, building up this whole industry around being a fan and getting whatever scrap of information they can and running it on their blog site. I realized that like, it's really dangerous. You got to have a lot of integrity. You have to have good intentions. You have to know what you're there to do because otherwise it's very easy for this whole thing to get very sour and go very sideways. So that was on Monday where I was thinking about all that. Then yesterday, there were two different, actually there were three different things yesterday and the last of which was the Batman thing. Okay. The first thing that happened yesterday for me was I woke up to all these tweets about the Joker script and I was infuriated by what I heard and by what I saw because it sounds like some bloggers read the script and then took it to the Internet to trash this movie and to make it sound like, oh my God, you may as well just cancel your Twitter accounts because it's gonna be mayhem when this movie comes out. And they basically opened up this whole can of worms where now this movie that was once pretty well-hyped and people were very excited for it based on the trailers and there's lots of reasons to think that this is gonna be a pretty special and unique film, now all of a sudden the entire internet conversation is about what a mess it might be. And then you have people defending it, you have people saying, oh no, it's gonna be a disaster and it's like why would you do this? This embarrasses me as a blogger. This makes me wanna just leave entirely. I do not wanna be associated with an industry that undercuts the very industry it professes to love, because that's what you're doing. If you're gonna take a script for a film that has not come out yet and start telling people that this is going to be a divisive, polarizing film, you're already planting that seed in your crowd. You're already planting that seed in the mind of the prospective audience. So now instead of walking in with an open mind, all the people who read that are gonna walk in feeling like, oh, well, now let's see why it's so divisive. And they're gonna look, oh, that must be the scene that so-and-so said was gonna make people angry. All that, and like now they're not in the movie. They're not falling into the dream state that Alfred Hitchcock wants the audience to fall into when he makes a film, back when he made films. You know, you're supposed to go into a dream state and just watch the movie and enjoy it for the entertainment that it is, enjoy the twists and turns, the acting, the drama, the whole nine yards. You're supposed to be able to just walk in and do that. But when already a subset of the fandom is being fed negative-sounding, panic-inducing information about the movie, now you've just tainted that movie for a bunch of people. Like, what kind of a scumbag do you have to be to think that, oh, okay, it's all right for me to do this? So yesterday, I was just incensed by that. And not only am I, was I angry that people were passing on information about the script, and, and, and especially doing it in a negative you know, uh, clickbaity sort of way. But also it's so devoid of actual knowledge about the situation. Because the script with the Joker almost doesn't matter. I know it's going to sound funny, but it almost doesn't matter. Because first of all, you already had Zazie Beats pointing out in an interview a few months ago that they didn't really even go by the script. The script was being rewritten every day. So How are you gonna go and look at a script and tell me that, oh, the movie's gonna be a disaster, or the movie's gonna be divisive? You don't know yet, not to mention, a script is one thing, but a script in the hands of a wonderful director and a great cast is a whole other ball game. You can't judge just based on the words on the page. There are great scripts that become terrible movies. There are terrible scripts that become great movies. There are movies that have no scripts that end up being phenomenal. Because that's the second thing that happened yesterday. I started listening to Christopher McQuarrie's epic long podcasts with the Empire, you know, the Empire podcast. They, they've they sat down with Chris McQuarrie for each of the last two Mission Impossible films and they've spoken about his process of creating them and they're hours and hours long but they're riveting. Christopher McQuarrie is an excellent interview. Now he's instantly jumped up to the top of like people I'd love to interview on this show one day which by the way I have a very cool guest coming next week but we'll get to that in a second. Um, Macquarie instantly jumped to someone I'm dying to speak to because he was pointing out like with Fallout, they hardly had a script. There were times when he was having sets constructed and still going, I don't know what we're going to do there yet. Later today, I don't know what we're going to do there yet. And look how wonderful Fallout turned out. Missing Impossible Fallout was a big win. Fans loved it. Critics loved it. It did very nice financially. McQuarrie's going to come back to film a two-part next film. You know, not a two-part, but he's going to film the next two, basically back-to-back. I mean, the, the movie was a huge win. And meanwhile, it went in with... Like hardly you know, with apparently only a very loose script that was evolving greatly on the fly. He said he did, he wasn't even sure what the villain's motivation was until they began filming. So you can't judge a film based on the script. So these people, I, I I wanted I want to say I want to call names or I want to insult them. <laughs> I want to like just drop all kinds of four-letter words right now because it's honestly you know it's my show it's. Fucking infuriating. And specifically with The Joker, I've spoken to people who've been on that set. I've spoken to people who worked on the film. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna share something with you, okay? Are you ready, cool kids? It's just us now. Shh, Don't tell anyone. On the set of The Joker, they often would spend entire days filming multiple versions of the same scene. Because that's the sort of experimental way that Phillips approached this material. A lot of times they would film the same scene one or two or three different ways at all these different levels. You know what I mean? Where all of a sudden, okay, in this version of the scene, when the Joker comes out of the courthouse, the crowd that's standing outside basically ignores him, and he looks like something of a loner and a pariah, and it didn't work out. In the next scene, when he comes out of the courthouse, the crowd is cheering him on, and there's ticker tape, and they're holding signs. Then in this version of the court, when he comes out, he pulls out a Tommy gun and plows down the crowd. I mean, you know, I I just took a real example and just had a little fun with it. A real example that I was given from someone who worked on the set who confided in that in me. But the point is, the film is like a living, breathing document. Todd Phillips wanted to film all kinds of different variations, obviously sticking within a certain blueprint that he had in mind, but his plan was, okay, I'm gonna film a ton, and then in the editing bay, I'm gonna find my movie. I'm gonna see how it is I wanna play this thing. That is how Phillips is approaching the Joker. So therefore, you can go fuck yourself with your concerns about the script. Because the script almost doesn't matter when it comes to a film like this. So, you know, I was infuriated by that. And that fed into what I heard on Monday about how the, you know, basically the geek blogs of the wrestling world really messed with WCW's chances of ever recovering or ever being able to be what it could have been because it had this meteoric rise. It went from being, you know, a steady number two to being number one for over a year and being just an absolute juggernaut to being basically gone in a matter of years. It's a fascinating story. And I'm not gonna put all of that on bloggers. I'm not even gonna put most of it on bloggers. But the fact that the online blogging community of, of quote unquote fans made the boss of a company made his life that much harder to do his job and save his company. The fact that it led to the corporate overlords and their executive suits to read those reports and decide that they needed to pull the plug on certain things or they needed to undermine the creative decisions of the people who brought them to the top. You know, it just, between that and that Joker thing, I really just started feeling like, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. You know, I want to keep the podcasting going and com will live on, and it's probably, you know, it's not going anywhere, but I'm, I'm, I'm mulling over sort of a change in format or a change in focus. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to be a hindrance. I, I actually do love this industry. I have a profound respect for the work that directors and writers and actors do. This stuff is my life. When I talk about entertainment as my life in my little Twitter bio, like I mean it. I live for this stuff. That's why I always say like, this podcast is just me hitting record and saying all the things that are on my mind anyway. All day long, what you're hearing right now is my inner monologue, and I'm thinking all this stuff anyway. So I'm not gonna go away. And nothing's changing immediately, but I gotta get my I gotta get my crew together and we gotta talk about this because I do not wanna be part of the problem. Cause there is a problem. Cause there was some other stuff in the Macquarie interview I found really interesting, and I think you might too. Because at some point he was asked the question about like you know, do these kinds of podcasts or does the reporting or the excessive analysis of all this stuff sort of mess with your creative process or hinder your, you know, the way you approach these productions. And Macquarie pointed out something that I'm just like, wow, he's so right. And that's probably how directors see all of us. What he was talking about how like, listen, you can't tailor your movie, you can't cater to the internet fans and the bloggers. You just can't because they're a very small percentage of the audience and unfortunately, they're so obsessive about things that they're never satisfied. He pointed out how like once he tried to like, he gave a, a cute example of like, when he was working on Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise, When Tom Cruise was initially cast, a lot of the hardcore fans went on the internet and said, this is an outrage. Jack Reacher is supposed to be a big, tall, brooding guy. You can't hire little shrimpy Tom Cruise for this. So he thought of a way that he might address that. You know, and aside from having Tom Cruise bulk up and get all, you know, he got thicker and more jacked. His hands were puffy in that movie. He got like thick and brawny, you know, more more so than when he's Ethan Hunt. Um, he had a shot in the movie that he was hoping those fans would appreciate. He's like, all right, you think he's little. But look, here's going to be this, sh- this shot where he doesn't have a shirt on. And we're gonna focus in on the the scars that he has on his body, because that's also a signature sort of Jack Reacher thing. You know, this whole idea of like, he's this battered warrior. And he wanted to focus that so that people will maybe go, okay, he may not be 6'2, but this is definitely a a, a good version of Jack Reacher. This is an honest, you know, good adaptation of Jack Reacher. But what happened? That scene was included in the movie, and the bloggers and the hardcore fans, instead of going, "Oh wow, okay, you know he's he got jacked and he has the scars and the, you know he, whatever," they started going, "Oh god, Tom Cruise is so vain." They had to do a shirtless, topless scene just so he could show off his body. And Macquarie said, like when he saw that reaction, he was so turned off that he just decided, "I can't make movies to please." the online fans because they're never satisfied. There's always going to be some bug up their ass about something. So I have to make this movie for the other 99% of the audience. The people who don't even know a movie is coming until they see the trailer for it and then decide based on the trailer, oh, you know what, that looks pretty good. When that comes out, you know, I'm gonna block out three hours of my life to go to a theater and see that. Macquarie wants to honor those fans That's who he's here for. He's not here to please the hardcores. And it really sounds like the hardcores are sort of a hindrance to a lot of filmmakers. And listen, I don't want to make us all sound bad. You know, being a a super fan is wonderful. But when you're in this hive where everything is like, just look at this week with Game of Thrones. Look at this thing with the petition to HBO to reshoot season eight. Look at the multiple petitions that came up since last night about replacing Robert Pattinson as Batman, which is ludicrous on so many levels. But when you look at the online community, the online fan community, and I put the bloggers and the fans together, because at the end of the day, we're all just fans. I'm just a fan, just like you are. I have a few friends who give me cool information because I've been doing it for five years, and I got a lot of free time on my hands. But at the end of the day, I'm just a fan. So when the industry looks, when filmmakers and artists and actual creators look at the online community, I imagine they go, ugh. I imagine they're fairly grossed out by a lot of the behavior they see. So that's why for me, it's very important for me to try to figure out my place in all this. Because yes, I try my very best to make Revenge of the Fans be a place where things are positive, where we're gonna give you the information and we're gonna try not to make you feel bad about anything. Even if it's bad news, we're gonna try to look at the silver lining. I try to make Revenge of the Fans a haven for people who are tired of all the snark and all the sarcasm and all the backbiting and all of the just childish nonsense that really detracts from what makes what from what we're here to do, which is to love movies and to celebrate our favorite characters and go on journeys with them. That's what we're here for. We're not here to go, oh, let me analyze this, this um concept art or oh they shot an alternate version of this scene with a different costume god what idiots why didn't they go with that other version like all of this like this 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 micromanaging and dissecting of stuff that's really none of our business really just has me wondering you know what the future looks like for myself and for revenge of the fans because honestly i'm pretty put off by it all and I have such love and respect and admiration for this industry that I never for a second want to be a thorn in anyone's side. And so when I get information and I, and, 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 and I want to run to report it, I often ask myself, like, is this all right? Should I wait till this director is ready to announce this? Is there a reason that they put a code name on this thing? Am I spoiling a surprise? You know, I realize like, I don't want to be a part of that. I really don't. I'm just, I, I need to hit pause. I need to regroup a little bit because I feel like something's got to give. And listening to the Macquarie podcast, which is some, something I took away from that, is that this industry is extremely volatile. And not necessarily in a bad way, just, just volatile in that you can't predict what's going to happen from what day to the next that filmmakers and directors have to make a lot of on-the-spot changes and adjustments, that these productions are constantly sort of evolving. And Macquarie makes a big point of saying that like, the big mistake that a lot of reporters and a lot of fans make when writing about Hollywood or covering Hollywood is they attempt to use logic. They attempt to apply logic to the proceedings. But the problem is, Hollywood and the filmmaking industry, the whole the whole process of making these movies is a highly illogical thing. There are so many egos, so many like outside variables, so many logistics that end up having to get rethought at the last second, so many moving parts on any particular blockbuster at any given time that it's damn near impossible to report on it 100% accurately. So what you end up doing as a blogger is you inadvertently create distractions, instead of like giving people information that's gonna heighten their enjoyment of the thing that they love, which is what I like to try to do. Instead of that, you inadvertently start sending people off on these tangents, looking at stories about things that information that they don't really need to have. You really just kinda like add all this extra fluff that is really almost like a hindrance between the audience and the movie that they're there to see. You don't need to... All this stuff, it's only there because people need daily content. So much of the stories that we see, that we share, that we read about, that we comment on, are all stories that really a few years back before the internet boom and everything, none of us would be given any damn about any of this stuff. So when I look at all this, especially when I look at it and, and, and I realize that, unfortunately, most bloggers make the realization that negative headlines get a lot more clicks and a lot more attention than positive ones, that's where you end up with the troubling outcome, where a lot of sites just end up becoming much snarkier, much more sarcastic, much more mean-spirited, because as a business model, that sells in this cynical world we live in. You know, so when I look at like the blogging thing, I don't see it as adding to your love of film. I see it as giving lots of distractions. You know, so it's just, it's just it's a tough spot to be in. You know, as someone who loves this, as someone who loves operating Revenge of the Fans, you know, when it feels like like so much of the water that I'm swimming in has been so badly polluted by people who never ever think about the morality in any of this it just you know and then then I turn around and I see like fans signing childish petitions to remake certain movies or recast certain things the way they want it to be like I look at the whole online world I look at all this entire thing that I'm attached to and you know I have more questions than answers And that about does it for this special holiday best of edition of The Fanboy. I will be back next week with episode 118, an all new episode of the show with plenty to discuss. So have a phenomenal holiday weekend. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Be thankful. Adios.